We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. Well, um, my friends, this is the last sermon in our Holy Spirit series. Um, so my dream today is to kind of wrap this all up and to be this exhilarating kind of fresh vision of, of what the Spirit is up to. Um, and then uh, I'm looking forward to the, the fall series, which will fit well. Um, but I guess, um, so just in case you haven't, you know, been part of all of it or been able to like listen to every podcast, we've had like a very beautiful kind of diverse, uh, collection of voices lead us through this. And, um, this sermon series was designed after the Pentecost, uh, moment in Acts 2, where Peter stands and cites Joel 2 from memory, um, as kind of this proclamation that the spirit has come and a new humanity is being born, Uh, And so on that day of Pentecost, the church is born. Uh, And then you see the Holy Spirit as this kind of main character in the book of Acts. And it's really lovely. Although if you didn't come from a Pentecostal tradition, you maybe haven't heard a lot of sermons on the day of Pentecost or on the Holy Spirit. And if you came from a Baptist tradition, which we we are a Baptist church, um, the Holy Spirit is probably the the person of the Godhead that is least sort of explored and, and talked about. And so I just found um, this series really beautiful. And, and what was really beautiful to me um, was also really tragic in how um, people kind of spoke to me uh, throughout this summer and, and after certain sermons. And they were like, wow, I really had a weird, like I thought the Holy Spirit was like scary, like scary, like it's a scary topic. Um, uh, uh, some people shared that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, um, they were taught that the Holy Spirit is that thing that's always convicting you. That voice that's always telling you you're bad and you did bad and you should feel guilty. And if you ever feel a moment of joy, but there's a little voice of doubt that's like, you're selfish or you shouldn't be enjoying it. You should be out in a soup kitchen or something like that's the Holy Spirit, like that constant voice that's telling you you're not good enough. Uh, wow. And I'm like, oh, as a pastor, that just makes my heart hurt because I don't want that to be where your theology comes from. Um, yeah, and, and it seems that uh, some of you, some of us were taught uh, that the Holy Spirit um, serves to make us doubt ourselves and, and question our joy, question our safety, um, the sense that if you're enjoying a moment, you know, don't blink because the Holy Spirit is always leading in, you into a place of suffering. So if you're, if you're in a place of suffering, that's good. And if you're not, well, you should be. And uh, just strange ideas. And I don't know if, any, if that resonates with any of you, but I know a lot of people are intimidated by topics like Holy Spirit. Another uh, thing I learned is that people have experienced maybe um, religious contexts where the Holy Spirit is kind of presented as like a personal magical power that people with a lot of money can summon for their own purposes. I think of like Hillsong or Bethel or like this kind of like, we have the Holy Spirit, we have this magical power, look at our smoke machine. And it's like, when that happens, and that's our experience of Holy Spirit, it gets really concerning when that movement quickly merges with, like, a political movement. And then all of a sudden, like, the pastor of this organization is running for Congress. You know, like, it's weird. And so I think of um, what uh, scholar Luke Powery says uh, about the Holy Spirit. He says, we tend to think of the Spirit as either a hidden energy in us, vivifying our own designs and efforts, or as a liturgical lapdog who comes when called, enlivening our worship and turning spirit-filled life into a spectacle. But the day of Pentecost reveals a God coming into solidarity with all of us in our unique contexts and particularities. The Spirit moves and speaks through the collective of many voices. God stoops low to speak in human words and likeness, 
The spirit disrupts and reorients and forms a new humanity that embodies justice before the world. And so something that I reflect on a lot lately is the way that the theology of the Trinity is like a really core doctrine. <laughs> and yet it can be much maligned, as Frederick Buechner says, or it can be um, misunderstood a lot. Uh, and I really like this quote, and I've used it in morning prayers a couple times, where uh, Frederick Buechner says, the much maligned doctrine of the Trinity is an assertion that, appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, there is only one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mean that the mystery beyond us, the mystery among us, and the mystery within us are all the same mystery. And I like that emphasis on the word mystery, because I think... Um, for me, that's what Holy Spirit theology does. It like re-enchants my faith because Holy Spirit is about mystery and this kind of force that I cannot predict. And I love this image that the mystery beyond us, God the Creator, our Father in Heaven, and the mystery among us, Christ our brother, and the mystery within us um, is the same mystery that there is only one God. And uh, it I really, I think, is profound. And, and so um, I want to um, read to you, actually, where I think of uh, Holy Spirit theology for, from where I want to go today. A text from John's Gospel. I don't talk about John a lot, and I'm excited because I love this, and this story is unique to John. It's the, the story about the, the Holy Spirit as a birthing mother. Uh, the text says, um, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into a mother's, the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of spirit. So it's like this uncontainable, uncontrollable mystery, and we might try from our ego to grasp onto it and control it and say, this is mine, and you don't have it. <laughs> And I do not bless you having it or whatnot, but I love this teaching in, in, in John 3 where Jesus is like, you do not get to know. You don't get to control. This, the, the spirit is like the wind that goes where it chooses. You might hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And within this, I love so much the imagery of the spirit as this birthing mother that you must be born again of the Spirit, this mysterious birthing mother. You do not know where she comes from or where she goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, and so I wanted to end this series on the idea of the Holy Spirit birthing a new thing, a new world, a new humanity. Uh, the Spirit, it seems, is our mother, and the Spirit birthed a new humanity on that day of Pentecost. It's that text of like, whew, something big and radical is happening. A big change just happened. This is what it means. The Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. And I love it. And I don't know, if you, if you know me or you've journeyed with me, um, I've found a lot of consolation in my life as I work through, uh, you know, difficult things to really relate to God as, as a mother figure. And while I acknowledge that God's pronouns are he, him in Scripture, that seems quite obvious, I also just love that God also seems to be presented as one with lactating breasts and a, a uterus that births. And so um, 
this kind of mother imagery is profound in, in, in John. It, it means a lot to me. And so um, I'm going to just be a little bit nerdy for a minute. And my favorite musicians are this duo, this cute little quirky duo called the Banksons. And they have a song. And whenever I read John 3 or I think about Holy Spirit as a mother, um, I think of the lyrics to their one song. It's a song about being born, and the lyrics go like this. I wish I could sing, but I can't unless I'm alone in my car. And then I can sing amazingly, but none of you will ever know. Um, In the lyrics, uh, she says, Congratulations, you made it. You're alive against all odds. And if you're here right now, it means you've been born at least two times. Because before you were born into the land of air and breathing, you were born as a spark in the dark, in the heart, in the center of your mother's belly. And the first thing you did was split in two. And then you grew, and you grew. You knew exactly what to do. You sprouted little arm buds, and you sprouted little leg buds. You were basically a little teddy bear grooving around inside the ocean of your mother's belly. And then you grew a tail. You lived an entire life cycle, an entire aquatic life cycle as a baby whale. And you couldn't see your mother, but you could believe in your mother because you could hear the beating of your mother's heart beating. And I think about that idea of being in the womb of God, of living an entire life life cycle there as this tiny new thing. If you've ever been around a woman who's pregnant and near the time of birth, mystery is the only word. You have no idea when the baby's going to come. There's signs. People are like, oh, the baby's dropped, or I can tell it's coming, and you're like, you have a due date, but that's just a made-up date most of the time. And you just don't know, and you can't force it, can't predict it, you can't like p- book your friend flying to Alberta to meet your baby. You just, like, It's a mystery, you never know. And I love the idea of God at one point being pregnant with us um, as individuals, but also as a church, and kind of this long journey where only the Spirit knows when you're going to be born into the new thing. St. Julian of Norwich wrote a lot about Christ as a mother figure. And she said, Our Savior is our true mother in whom we are endlessly born and out of whom we shall never come. That idea of safety and being held and being nourished calls to mind for me one of my favorite texts from Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, verse 14 to 17, the Spirit of God says through the prophet, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. But now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbage. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by a road they do not know, by paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. This is the Holy Spirit, this birthing mother gasping and panting and pushing because the new world is being born, and the day of Pentecost is the day of our birth as a church. And the text from Joel, which Peter cites, is our blessing. On the next slide, I have that text, and I know we're familiar with it, and I'm like, I don't think that's weird to preach the same text every week for 10 weeks. Like, it just means we're hiding it in our hearts, and I love it. But imagine, like, as this baby is being born, as this, this, this divine, like, mother is birthing the new world, she's birthing a church, Peter kind of witnessing the birth. Like, I just imagine the chaos of this community. They're all of a sudden speaking each other's languages. Something is changing radically. The world is changing. He stands up, and from memory, he, he cries out, this is what, what was said 
Like, this is what we were told. In the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon the enslaved, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I will show portents or wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, this, this is the text that birthed the church. The spirit of God rushes in and pours out all of God's love and lavishes God's spirit upon all flesh. Children prophesy, young men see visions, old men dream again. I picture a community of people without any hope, without any vision, with a sense of devastation and, and despair and hopelessness. I think of a, a Jewish community living under Roman occupation in the first century. You can imagine fearing that your children would lose your language and your sacred songs and your sacred memories and stories and this idea that it's all being lost. And here, this text kind of erupts from Peter as if to say that, no, it's not true. Our children will speak our stories and our songs back to us. Our young men will have visions again. They will be motivated by what they love and no longer by what they fear. Your old men will dream again. They will feel excited for the future. They will no longer live in a state of nostalgia for what was. The marginalized will teach those who are in the center. The last will be first and the first will be last. Even the sky and the land will come alive. It will become unpredictable and it will show us the heart of God for the land God loves. God's spirit will take our hearts of stone and God's spirit will give us new hearts made of flesh. And it won't just be a personal spirit whispering sweet nothings in our ear, but this will be the spirit of the loving God who is birthing a new world and a new humanity. And so you bet that empires will be overthrown in the year of the Lord's favor. And we know that um, the, this text represents the brand new thing um, that the Holy Spirit is doing on that day of Pentecost. And at the end of that chapter in Acts 2, I don't have slides for this, so you can just keep this up for a minute. But at the end of this very chapter, the response of this sort of little baby that's been born into the world, uh, it says that they devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, that awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done, and all who believed were together and held all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day they spent much time together in the temple and they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And just two chapters later, um, there's a repetition of this kind of identity of the new baby of the church. And it says, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of anything. But everything was owned and held in common. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds that was sold, which tells us that something happened on this day that radically changed their perspective on the world, on, their, on each other, on their neighbors, and on what's possible for the future. We see a group of people made new, reborn, 
We see a people becoming co-heirs with Christ, inheriting God's dream for the world God loves. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, which is like one of my favorite things to do, you can see this group of people who, who, who have this new fresh vision for what's possible go and they gather in Samaritans and Ethiopian eunuchs and uncircumcised Gentiles. And the whole book of Acts is this widening of the loving arms of God. And, and the people who are proclaiming this widening circle of God's love are constantly getting in trouble because of how radically they love and include those they had never imagined loving before. And it seems that as they came to know the God of love who pours out his spirit on all flesh, they become a people who pour out the gifts they've received upon all people they meet. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And I think of this work of the spirit in our lives even now, this work of breathing new life, this work of removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh that can feel. I think of the Holy Spirit that's even now still breathing new life into the nostrils of that clay man, the first human, until his stone heart began to warm and beat and glow with the light of Christ in whom he was formed, illuminating the shadows until we can look with love uh, and see in the stranger what we could only formerly see in the mirror. The Holy Spirit tenderly loves you. I think that's the dream of this series has been that like the Holy Spirit isn't just rationing out little bits to those who are obedient and good and pure. The Holy Spirit is like recklessly lavishing it out, uh, lavishing the, the, the spirit uh, of Jesus upon us, this idea that God loves us, God tenderly loves us. Uh, I see that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us the God who desires us, longs for us, pursues us, chooses us. Um, I had the privilege of preaching at Westside Kings a bunch of times this summer, and I, I was preaching there my last sermon this morning, and it kind of hit me partway through that someone could take the whole point of my sermons as like, you need to love people better. Like, be better at loving people. You're not good at loving people. And I'm like, well, what's the gospel in that? I don't think the application should be like the pastors, like, love each other better. Do more. You should be like, hey, do you not know how much you are loved? If you knew how radically you were loved you would be transformed into someone who's like, what are private possessions? Like you would just want to join the flow. So I really wanted um, to remember the gospel of, about God's love and, and remember that God is the one calling, where are you, to the hiding Adam and Eve. Who told you you were naked, God asks them. Because hiding from God in shame was not God's idea. God is not disappointed in you. God hasn't had to learn to accept you. And neither has God had to settle for whatever this version of your present self is, as if this isn't the version God had hoped for. God loved the very good world he created so much that he became one of us and moved into the neighborhood, cleaned it up a whole bunch so that it could feel like home for all of us. And after all of the work God is doing and all of the work we've been sent to do is the work of homemaking. This seems like a very motherly role, homemaking. Our hope is that at the end of it all, the home of God will be among us, that all tears will be wiped away, and all things will be made new. That's directly from Revelation 21. That's the end goal. That's the last stop on this train. God at home with us, and all of us at home in the God who is love, held safe in the womb of God, and endlessly being born into the loving arms of God. 
Paul writes to the Romans, if you recall from uh, last fall, that in Christ, our hope is that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. So literally nothing you do can separate you from the love of God. Neither death nor devils can take away God's love. The depth, height, width of God's love is immeasurable and incomprehensible. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God first loved us. It seems to me from this Pentecost text that we can't coerce or convince God to love us any more or any less than God already does. God doesn't love us because Jesus died. Jesus died because God loves us. This is the starting point. N.T. Wright, if you're familiar with that name, he says it like this. I love this. He says, this is the basis of all other good news, that the power behind the cosmos is not blind chance, nor yet brute force, but love. This is the claim that ought to shape the Christian imagination and propel us into the neighborhood we love because he first loved us. And this is not a fickle love or a manipulative love. God doesn't only love us when we're obeying and then withdraw his love when we wander off course. God doesn't stonewall us. God doesn't give us the silent treatment until we figure out what it is he wants and then get to work. God is the source of all love. Phileo, agape, eros, all of it. God is the initiating love that begets all other love and reconciles all of creation back towards it. This is the gospel. It's like this day, like the Holy Spirit's birthing this new humanity that's like you will know you are loved and all of the world will be made different because this community knows they're loved. God loves you in the neighborhood of your own mind where you'd rather not visit alone. That's why we go to therapy. God loves you at the site of the wound you'd rather not tend. God loves the side of you that's turned towards him, and God loves the shadow you cast that you've never turned to examine. God's love is a gift, not the wage you earn for your hard religious work. It's a gift. So I can hear the mother sing over the big, large belly, come on out, honey, it's time to be born. God's love is a circle whose circumference you will not find. And I think that's the overall point of, of like the whole New Testament, but especially Colossians, that the reconciling of all things back to the center of God's love has already begun. After washing the disciples' dirty feet, Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And later he says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. It's by our love, not our virtue, not our production, not our brand, not our creeds or our confessions, but by our love for one another. And this is our work, our liturgy, our worship, is to gaze upon the face of one another, the illuminated face, and know from the soft marrow of our bones that we are gazing upon the face of God's beloved. And if you could walk in this neighborhood that way, this neighborhood would not be the same this time next year. The scriptures reveal to us that the Holy Spirit is this warrior mother birthing the new world. You can hear, especially throughout the book of Isaiah, just keep breathing, just keep breathing. The future is being born in our midst. And, it, it, and this idea of I will pant and cry out, this is not the rage of a God intending to harm. It is the rage of a God who is birthing the next world. It is the creaturely roar of laboring towards liberation. 
Jesus told Nicodemus that the new world is not possible without a rebirth, without being lifted by the ankle and having the goop of the old world sucked from your crying lungs and wiped from your fresh face to say it is hatred and war and cancer and abuse that we are leaving behind forever. That is the old world, but we are being born into the new world where God's battle is not against flesh and blood, and neither is ours. We are being born into the new world of which you are an intentional, on-purpose, hoped-for part. In Isaiah 49, it says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his suffering ones. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See? I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your cause is continually before me. And I love this image so much of this birthing Holy Spirit because it tells me on the days I am despairing and I think that the fires are going to beat the forests and that darkness is going to win, I'm reminded that the future is right now nursing at the breast, that the age to come has already been born. The future is secure. Her walls are continually before the enduring one. The friend is the hope-filled one. And this warrior God loves the non-committal and flighty and stiff-necked people that the lover has called beloved. In my prayers uh, in this summer, looking at this series, I just felt God saying, I am with you, and I see that you're afraid and weary. I see you've been mistreated. I see you've been lied to over and over and over. You've been voted against. You've been interrupted and silenced and misunderstood and, and, and. I see that you have very little reason to trust that it could ever be different. Let your grief be a river flowing from your wound towards the sea. And look even now, the salmon mothers, it's almost September, and I love salmon, so I'm thinking about this a lot. I'm thinking of this image. Uh, it was actually from a Bankson song. She says, let your grief flow out to the ocean. Uh, and I thought, wow, what a beautiful image. is to let your grief be a river that flows from your wound towards the sea. And notice even now the salmon mothers are beginning their journey towards the wound. Against the current of your sorrow towards you. Towards the wound. They are swimming ceaselessly. They are carrying the eggs of tomorrow. And they will give their lives to leave them with you. To entrust them to you for they are propelled by hope in you and in the future they seek to plant here at the headwaters of this present moment. And so I see the Holy Spirit is this birthing warrior spirit who is always creating something new, always ushering in this new world and, and, and this new um, hope. Uh, and so I want to um, pray for us and uh, encourage us. I think that we, we are better for a stronger theology of the Holy Spirit. We are better for a stronger theology of the Trinity. And so this idea of the mystery, the mystery beyond us, the mystery in our midst, uh, and the mystery within us is the same mystery. And this mysterious God that we worship 
is not a stranger way out there whose attention we have to try and get with our goodness, but all things have been made in and through this God. We are being held together in the circle of this God's love. And in John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. That we will not be orphaned by the Spirit. So I have the privilege of leading us also in communion. And so um, allow me to pray for us and lead us to that table. So I pray, Holy Spirit, uh, that we would hear, we would hear your voice from the other side telling us it's time to be born. I pray that we would um, see our despair as proof that the womb is getting tight and it's time to be born. I pray that you would give us that vision, uh, the vision that your love and reconciliation and the new thing is the last stop. It's where we're headed. It's where we're going. I pray that you would give us that vision for you uh, wiping away tears for you birthing a new thing. And I ask that you would soften the heart of awakened church, that we would not hold on with nostalgia to what was, but nor would we hold on with naivety for the ideal of what could be. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to who we are right now in this moment, that we would be faithful to the work you have given us and faithful to your dream that we have inherited. Give us eyes to see one another as you see the folks here, and I pray that you would give us hearts to love this neighborhood the way you love this neighborhood. And as we open to receive the gift of your love, I pray that you would transform us to be a generous, gift-giving, loving people, and so things would be made new. Amen. As a benediction for our gathering, I'm just going to speak over us Paul's benediction to the Corinthians. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Finally, siblings, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you all. So may you go from here in peace, feeling a, a sense of new hope that all things are being made new and that we are part of the hoped-for plan of God for this place. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.